Scott. Thank you, Orchestra. Thank you, ladies. Book of Zechariah tonight, please. Zechariah chapter 1. And for those of you who are alert and uh, are aware, yes, we have skipped the book of Haggai. I'm sure you're all aware of that fact, that Haggai comes before Zechariah. And uh, Pastor's just finished the book of Zephaniah, which would make, and I just did the book of Habakkuk, which would make the next book Haggai. That's true. But to see this 14 chapters in Zechariah and the lot fell to me to take on Zechariah and the pastor's going to take the two shorter books of Haggai and Malachi, okay? So uh, we haven't forgotten or got our books of the Bible out of order. We just uh, made an, uh, a, a, an executive decision as to what we're going to do there. And so I got the book of Zechariah. I'm not sure which one of us got the better deal, but anyway, uh, that's what happened. So we're going to read the first six verses of Zechariah chapter 1. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah the son of Berechiah, the son of Idu, the prophet, saying, The Lord hath been sore displeased with your fathers, therefore say thou unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. Be ye not as your fathers, unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye now from your evil ways and from your evil doings, but they did not hear nor hearken unto me, saith the Lord. Your fathers were, where, they, where are they? Sorry, your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? And they returned and said, like as the Lord of hosts thought to do unto us according to our ways and according to our doings, so hath he dealt with us. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you this night for your word. We thank you for the book of Zechariah. We pray that, Lord, tonight as we open up uh, your word and start to investigate this book, that you give us wisdom and guidance and understanding. Lord, we do pray for your leading pray that you give me wisdom and understanding and pray that you'd guide me tonight as we introduce this book that we like learn some precious truths from you and we might be blessed and encouraged we might leave this place this night having known that we've been in your presence and being able to say hallelujah for what a savior uh, father we thank you now for this night and i do pray that you'd guide me and help me as i seek to preach your word use me to your glory i pray in jesus name The book of Zechariah, we need to understand, was written at one of the most critical times in Israel's history. See, Zechariah served the Lord in the years after the remnant returned, to Israel, to returned from seven years of Babylonian captivity back to Jerusalem. So this takes place after the books of Ezra and the books of Nehemiah in that time period, okay? So this, this book is written to those captives who've returned to Jerusalem to assist in the building of the temple and the building of the walls. His prophetic career is marked by the reign of Darius, the ruler of the Medes and Persians. There's no mention of a king over Israel or over Judah, and the reason for that is because there is no king in Israel or in Judah at this time in Israel's history. As they return to Jerusalem, they have no king. As they get there back to the setting up their 
their, their homeland. There is no king. So the only king that's mentioned in this book is Darius the Mede. And as we begin to study the book, I want us to note, first of all, the introduction to the book. And tonight, we're really just going to introduce the whole of the book to us before we next week start to look at the book proper. The introduction of the book, in verse 1 we read, In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Idu, the prophet, saying, Some years have passed since Cyrus the Great conquers the Babylonian Empire. And uh, we find here this now in the eighth month of the year of Darius. Go back with me to Ezra, please. Ezra chapter 5. chapter 5 and verse 1 we read then the prophets Haggai and the prophet Zechariah the son of Idu prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judea, Judea and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel even under them go back to chapter 4 and verse 24 if you would the verse prior to that we read this we read that then ceased the work of the house of God which is at Jerusalem so it ceased in the second year of the reign of Darius king of Persia so here's the setting of this book. Okay, the, this is the time after Zerubbabel's come. Remember, Zerubbabel went in to rebuild the temple. After a short period of time, the work ceased. And it's here in the second year of the reign of Darius, the work, ceased, the work ceases on the work of the temple under Zerubbabel. And this is the time that we find that Zechariah is writing. Go back with me to Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, please. We read in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord, by the mouth of Jeremiah, might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation through all the kingdom, put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus of Persia, The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and hath charged me to build an house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So Cyrus has made the command to go forth and build the temple. The work has ceased, and now we find Zechariah is writing his book. Now, it was indeed a joyful time when the Jews returned to Jerusalem after 70 years of captivity. There can be no doubt that there is rejoicing. There can be no doubt that there is excitement in the whole thing. They're being granted permission to return and to build their city, and particularly their temple. That's Ezra chapter 1. And a remnant returned in 536 B.C., and laid the foundation of the temple in 535 BC. But following that, opposition arose and the work stopped, which is what we read about in Ezra chapter 4 and verse 24. Actually, the whole chapter 4 talks about the cessation of the work on the temple under Zerubbabel. It stops because of the opposition. In 520 BC, the Lord raises up Haggai and Zechariah to stir the leaders of the people. And in 515 BC, they finished the work. So God uses these two prophets to stir the people up to finish the job. Haggai's principal ministry was that exhorting the people to rebuild the temple. Go with me, one book back to Haggai chapter 1. Haggai chapter 1 and verse 2. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come. 
the time that the Lord's house should be built. Verse 4. It is time for you, O ye, that dwell in your sealed houses, and that this house lie waste. Verse 8. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 3. Who was left among you that saw this house in her first glory, and how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? Yet now I, now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work, for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. The primary goal, the primary responsibility of the prophet Haggai was to stir up the people to get moving again and building the temple after those two years of cessation of work under Zerubbabel to stir them up to build. Now, of course, it's Ezra is the one who goes down and builds the temple. We know that story. Okay, this is prior to Nehemiah going and building the walls. But Ezra goes to rebuild the temple after Zerubbabel's attempt failed. And Haggai seeks to stir the people up to finish the job. They start, in fact, he's very disconsolate. God's disconsolate with them. The people are living in homes that have sealed ceilings. In other words, their homes are beautiful. Their homes are finished. Their homes are rendered, their walls are looking beautiful, the ceilings are beautiful, but the house of God is sitting in ruins. And God has challenged them in the book of Haggai to get on with the job and finish the work. And so this end, Haggai delivers his short prophecy, a striking prophecy that has uh, recorded in his book, it's only two chapters long, and his exhortation brought about revival in this nation of Israel. Then in the midst of that revival, in the midst of the work that Haggai is doing as he preaches to the remnant who's returned to rebuild the temple, God raised up another prophet to give a further message of encouragement to the people, and that prophet is Zechariah. Okay, in, Zach in Haggai chapter 1 and verse 1 we read, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of, Hag of the Lord to Haggai the prophet under Zerubbabel, under Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jostek, the high priest, saying, and in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, In the seventh month, in the twentieth day of the month, came the word of the Lord and the prophet Haggai, saying, now in Zechariah 1, 1, we read, In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord and Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Idu, the prophet, saying. So Haggai writes in the second year of Darius, in the sixth month, and we find that Zechariah is called in the eighth month, two months later, to write his book. So that's the introduction of the book. Secondly, notice for me tonight the introduction of the prophet. The introduction of the prophet. We find here well, his name is called Zechariah. Now, Zechariah is an interesting name. It means whom Jehovah remembers. He whom Jehovah remembers. And that's the theme of the book. You see, the nation of Israel were under the miscomprehension that somehow God had forgotten them. Yes, they'd returned to rebuild the temple. They'd come under attack. The temple had remained in ruins because the people were afraid and they needed encouraging. And Zechariah the prophet comes, he whom the Lord remembers to preach a message of remembrance that God has not forgotten his people. 
And like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Zechariah was of priestly descent. He was born in Babylon of a priestly family. His grandfather was Idu. Read that in verse 1. Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Idu, the prophet, saying. Now, Idu was one of the 12 priestly families who went to Jerusalem with Zerubbabel. Okay, when Zerubbabel returned to rebuild the temple, he took with him 12 priestly families. One of those families was the family of Idu, which is the grandfather of Zechariah. And Zechariah succeeds his grandfather Idu to head the priestly family. Go back to Nehemiah, if you would, please. Nehemiah chapter 12. Nehemiah chapter 12. In verse 1 we read, Now these are the priests and the Levites. Verse 4, Idu is mentioned. I'm not going to take time to read all the other names. Idu. And then you drop down to verse 16. We read, Of Idu, Zechariah. So Idu is one of the priestly families that returns to Jerusalem to build the temple and that was chosen of God and Zechariah is his grandson so he's a prophet but he's of priestly extract it appears that when he's called to the prophetic ministry something else that we note about Zechariah is that he's still very young and that's inferred in the fact of what is said of him in chapter 2 and verse 4 it says, and said, this is there's an angel speaking in verse 3, and behold, the angel that talked with me went forth, and another angel went out to meet him, and said unto him, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited at Sastans without walls for the multitude of men and cattle therein. He's called a young man. Now, the Hebrew word for young man is the word nar, N A A R. And it means a young man, a boy, or a youth. It's the same word that's used by Saul of David in 1 Samuel 17.33. Let's go there. 1 Samuel 17.33. Now, for all of you who like history and like flipping around your Bible, tonight's going to be a joy for you, okay? 1 Samuel 17.33. So Saul said to David, Thou art not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for thou art but a youth. And he is a man of war from his youth. It's the same word also that's used of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 1 6, where it says, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a child. Now we're not told how old Zechariah is when he writes this prophecy, but we do know he's a young man. He's not very old. He's a, he's a young lad. Now, of course, in the Jewish scheme of things, you're a young lad till you're about 30 years of age. So uh, he could be anywhere up to 30. And, of course, you then become a little bit older once you turn 30 and you're an old man uh, when you get to be uh, a little, little bit older than that. But uh, you're a young person uh, until about the age of 30. So we're not sure exactly. But in the grand scheme of things, he's a young man as he presents this prophecy. And this young man is entrusted with this great message for the nation of Israel now back in the land. God calls him to minister to a struggling nation, to the Jewish remnant trying to rebuild their temple. Haggai has stirred them up to do the work and now he comes alongside them and helps them to rebuild the temple in the ruined city of Jerusalem and encourage them with the word of God. 
As I said, we don't know how young he was, but we do know that Jewish tradition tells us that, uh, or they credit him with being a member of the great synagogue, which is a body which is thought to have gathered to preserve the sacred writings and traditions of the Jews while in captivity. And it seems that one of his jobs while he was in Babylon, he was growing up in this priestly family, was that he had part of the role of preserving the, the, the sacred rituals, the sacred messages of the Jewish nation. And so when they returned to rebuild the temple, he's an ideal person to be chosen to proclaim this message because he knows the word of God, he knows the promises of God, he knows the truth of God. So even though he's young, he's very apt at being able to be used of God to present this message. And you know, I was thinking about that, you know, it doesn't matter how young you are when it comes to sharing the word of God, what matters is how much you know. It's how well-versed you are in the scriptures, how much you understand the word of God, it's how much God spoke to you through the word that makes the difference, not your age. You know, there are a lot of people who are older physically, but are spiritually inept. And there's a lot of young people who are very knowledgeable scripturally and can be used to the glory of God. And that's one of the reasons why we need to read God's word, study God's word, memorize God's word, so that we can be used of God to present the word of God. Now, Zechariah joins Haggai in the ministry two months after Haggai commences his ministry. We saw that in Haggai 1.1 and Zechariah 1.1. So two months apart, they start their ministries, joint ministries of preaching the word of God to the nation of Israel. The two men served God together for a short time. Haggai had got the building program restarted. He got the people moving again after a 16-year hiatus. It's been 16 years since the building started, then ceased after two years, and 16 years later, now the prophet comes, Haggai, followed by Zechariah to encourage the people to finish their work. And God gave him good and comforting words. Look in verse 13 of chapter 1, please. So the Lord answered the angel that talked with me with good words and comfortable words. So the angel that communed with me said unto me, Cry thou, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I am a jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great jealousy. Then verse 17, please. Cry yet, say, thus saith the Lord of hosts, my cities through prosperity shall yet be spared abroad, and the Lord shall yet comfort Zion and shall yet choose Jerusalem. You know, the Lord gives good and comforting words to the nation of Israel through Zechariah. Words to assure the people that in spite of the hard times, in spite of the opposition, in spite of the difficulties, God was with them that God would see them through. God would enable them through the midst of all of this difficulty, bring them through the other side. The temple would be built. The city would be rebuilt. God would enable them despite the terrible times. And Zechariah's ministry, like that of Haggai, was to encourage the returned remnant to rebuild the temple and to faithfully serve their God in the midst of difficult times as they're nourished in the hope that God has for them. You know, today, as we face the world in which we live, God's not left us without good and comforting words. 
You know, God's given to you and I words of hope, words of encouragement, words of, uh, of joy in difficult times. We've been given to us wonderful words. Haven't we? First Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter 4, we all know this well. But First Thessalonians chapter 4. And verse 13. But I would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if you believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you, by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with the Lord, uh, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. These are words of comfort. These are words of encouragement. These are words of joy in the midst of the dark world in which we live. And we do live in a very dark old world, don't we? We live in perilous times, Timothy tells. We live in difficult times. And just as the nation of Israel, as they encountered difficulty in seeking to rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls, you and I as believers face obstacle after obstacle to the preaching of the gospel and standing up for that which is right in this world in which is so bent on doing that which is wrong. And yet in the midst of that, God's given to you and I words of comfort that you and I should not be ignorant concerning those who are asleep. But one day we'll hear the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, and we shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Timothy, Titus puts it this way, doesn't he? In Titus 2.11, he says that this is a looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a blessed hope. We have words of comfort and words of encouragement in the midst of difficult times. And we're going to see that even as Zechariah is written to the nation of Israel, there are words of comfort and words of joy for you and I in this book as we study it together. Thirdly, not only do we have the introduction of the book, the introduction of the prophet, we also have the introduction of the prophecy. In verses 1 through 6, he introduces to us the prophecy. He says in verse 2, Thus saith the Lord, uh, sorry, The Lord hath been sore displeased with your fathers. Therefore, say thou unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn to you, saith the Lord of hosts. Be ye not as your fathers, under whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye now from your evil ways and from your evil doings, but they did not hear nor hearken unto me, saith the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes which I commanded, my servants, the prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? And they returned and said, Like as the Lord of hosts, thought to do unto us according to our ways and according to our doings so he hath dwelt with us basically he says all your prophets have disappeared but what's left is the word of God what I proclaim to your, your ancestors has come to pass isn't it true where are your fathers where are the prophets but where's my word my word remains true and sure you know, it's been noted that, the, that uh, the prophetic horizon of Zechariah is far broader than any of the other minor prophets. 
this book it's 14 chapters long which makes it the longest of these minor prophets which kind of beggars the statement as to why it's a minor prophet when it's actually uh, a long book but it is classed as one of the minor prophets and it does it's been said by uh, commentators that the horizon over which it looks is broader than any other of the minor prophets because as with most Old Testament prophecies, we must distinguish between the near and the distant meanings of what Zechariah says. You know, in one verse, he describes the fall of Jerusalem under the Romans. In the very next verse, you'll picture the coming of Messiah to reign. He dwells on the person and the work of Jesus Christ more fully than any other of the minor prophets. This book is a, is a picture of the future. It's a prophetic book not only about what's coming with regard to the Roman Empire and what the Romans are going to do, but about Jesus Christ, about how Christ will come and win the victory over sin, but it also looks forward to the final days, the tribulation and the battle of Armageddon and what God's going to do in the future. As I said, he deals more fully with the, uh, the life of Christ than any of the minor prophets. Zechariah's favorite name for God is Lord of Hosts or the Lord of Armies. He sees the Lord coming to defeat Israel's enemies and establish Jerusalem in peace and glory. This is a magnificent book. You have the immediate challenge to the people who have just returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and ultimately build the walls. You then have an encouragement of the nation of Israel at the time of the Roman Empire and the fall of, of Jerusalem and the sank, uh, uh, sacking of the temple and the people being scattered. And then you look forward again to the coming of Christ. Magnificent book. To apply these magnificent prophecies to the church of spiritual Israel today is to rob the book of its meaning and its power. And yet you read so many commentators and they want to read the church into this. They talk about the church doing this and the church doing that and the church being here and the church being there. The love of the church is not mentioned in this book. In fact, you and I don't really get a look in, in this book as a church, as people who are born again believers between the rapture between pentecost and the rapture we're not in this book now there's much to apply to you and i and you and i can learn much from this book by way of application we will apply this book as we go but the primary purpose of this book is to the nation of israel and it's about the fact that god's not finished with his people he hadn't finished with them at the time of the Babylonian captivity. He hadn't finished with them when they returned to Jerusalem. He hadn't finished with them under the Roman oppression. He hadn't finished with them when they were scattered in AD 70. And God returned them in 1948 as a nation. God has not finished with Israel yet, no matter what the world might say. And I don't know if you've noticed lately, but the world is very anti-Jewish as of late. And the media is anti-Jewish as of late. They talk an awful lot about the Palestinians and how hard done they are by the, their attacks on Israel. I think that uh, the, the world needs to look and realize how constrained the nation of Israel is in regards to its retaliation against the nations who bomb it daily. That we don't hear about, by the way. We don't hear about the rockets fired into Israel regularly, daily. We don't hear about the fact that they're under... Uh, the fear of suicide bombers and others regularly, what we hear is we hear just one side of the story. Now, don't get me wrong. What Israel does by way of uh, uh, killing people, etc., may well be seen as wrong. But they're provoked into this by the other side too. 
And it seems like the world would love to see Israel finished. But we've got news for them. Israel's not finished. Israel is God's people. They may be in unbelief at the moment, but one day they will see Jesus Christ. They'll look upon him whom they have pierced and they will glory in him and God will win the victory for them and they will possess the land from the river Euphrates to the river Nile as God promised them. It will be their land for it is their land. And one day God will restore it unto them. That's what this book's all about. It's about how God has not finished with his people yet. This book is for Israel. Notice what he says in uh, verses 1 through 6. Notice a phraseology that comes up. It says, The Lord hath been sore displeased with your fathers. Thus saith the Lord unto them. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. Be ye not as your fathers, under whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye now from your evil ways and from your evil doings, but they did hear, not hear, nor hearken unto me, saith the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which command my servants, the prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? And they returned and said, Like as the Lord of hosts thought to do unto us according to our ways and according to our doings, so hath he dwelt with us. Your fathers, your prophets, who's he talking to? not talking to us. Abraham and Moses and all them, they're not our fathers. He's talking to Israel. He's talking to this people, the nation of Israel, who are about to rebuild their temple and about to rebuild their walls. He's talking to them as people. This is not to the church. These are the prophecies and the promises to God's people. Now, you and I can find applications. I said, and we can praise God, can't we, that we have a promise-keeping God. You know, if this book was not to Israel, and if the prophecies to Israel were not meant for Israel, but now meant for the church, we have a God who doesn't keep his promises. That's one of the problems I have with the amillennial doctrine, which teaches that Israel's finished. Because God made promises to his people, to the nation of Israel. He promised them a physical land dirt he promised them real dirt to be theirs real estate that belonged to them and if god stopped keeping that promise and somehow turned to the church and now all the promises of israel are for the church god doesn't keep his promises but beloved we have a promise keeping god and we can be thankful for that we can praise him for that he will return for israel and establish his kingdom just as surely as he's come and take you and I home to glory. You know, we can, we can go to 1 Corinthians 15, if you would please. We can rest assured that 1 Corinthians 15 is an absolute promise to you and I that God will keep because God has always kept his word. And so if God has always kept his word, and God will always keep his word, he will keep these promises too. Look in 1 Corinthians 15, 50. It says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall all sleep, but we shall all be changed in the moment of the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trump shall sound, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. 
So when this corruptible shall have put on corruption, this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abandon the work of the Lord, for as much you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That's God's promise to us. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, you and I will be changed. This corruptible will put on incorruption. This mortal shall put on immortality because God promised it. And how do I know he'll keep his promise? Because he always has. We have a promise keeping God. And you and I can guarantee he'll keep his promise to you as he will to Israel. You know, this book of Zechariah ranks next to Daniel as an Old Testament unveiling of God's plan for the Jewish nation. God is jealous for Jerusalem. He will punish the heathen for what they did to his city. And he will one day restore the city to glory and peace. In verses 14 to 17 of chapter 1, we have the key verse of this book. Verse 14, So the angel that communed with me said unto me, Cry there, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Jerusalem, for Zion with great jealousy. And I am very sore displeased with the heathen that are at ease, for I was but a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. My house shall be built in it, saith the Lord of hosts, and the line shall be stretched forth upon Jerusalem, cry ye, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, My cities through prosperity shall yet be spared abroad, spread abroad, and the Lord shall yet comfort Zion. And shall yet choose Jerusalem. You know, the fact that God has chosen Jerusalem in his grace is mentioned often in this book. It's mentioned here in verse 17. It's mentioned in chapter 2 and verse 12. And thus, uh, and the Lord shall inherit Judah, his portion in the Holy Land, and shall choose Jerusalem. Again, chapter 3 and verse 2. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuked thee, O Satan, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuked thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? You know, this is God's grace to his people. In fact, the city of Jerusalem is mentioned 39 times in the book of Zechariah. In 14 chapters, we find 39 references to the city of Jerusalem. God in his grace will deliver Jerusalem. They don't deserve it. They didn't deserve it back then. They certainly don't deserve it today. But you know, it's not because they deserve it that God's going to put them in the land. It's not because they deserve it that they're going to receive the promises that God gave to their fathers. It's because God is a God of grace, isn't it? Just as you and I, we don't deserve what we have. You and I are what we are by the grace of God. It's because of what God, who God is, not because of what we are. It's because of God's grace that you and I are what we are. And as we read the book of Zechariah, we're going to see over and over and over again the grace of God, the mercy of God to an undeserving nation. And it ought to remind you and I that you and I likewise are the recipients of the grace and mercy of God and we don't deserve any of it. And it ought to cause you and I to praise him all the more. He says in 
chapter 1 and verse 12, he will have mercy on the city. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will thou not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the city of Judah against which thou hast indignation three score and ten years? God will eventually show mercy. And one day he will dwell in the city. Turn to chapter 8, if you would please. Chapter 8 and verse 3. Thus saith the Lord, I am returned unto Zion, and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain, verse 8. And I'll bring them, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. There's a day coming when he's going to dwell in the city of Jerusalem. And to that end, this book is full of wonderful truths regarding the second coming of Jesus Christ to earth to establish his kingdom. And what a day that will be when Christ comes again. This book is divided into three parts. Chapters 1 through 6 describe for us eight visions. And these summarize the message of the book of Zechariah. And that message is that Jerusalem will be delivered, cleansed and reestablished in peace and prosperity. That section closes with the crowning of Joshua as king and priest, a picture of Jesus Christ. In chapters 8 through 9, we have recorded for us the visits of some Jews to ask about the feast, about the fasts in commemoration of the fall of Jerusalem. And they talk about the fast that was established in the fifth month in 2 Kings 25 and verse 8 and Jeremiah 52 and verse 12. We have the establishment of the fast, this particular fast, that they were to celebrate to remember the fall of Jerusalem, okay? And they were to fast on that fifth, uh, fifth in each fifth month, they were to fast remembering the destruction of Jerusalem, the fall of Jerusalem. And so the, what we find is that some Jews come and ask why they have to keep on fasting now that they're back in the city. After all, if Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt, why do we need to keep fasting? Zechariah replies that their fasting ought to be from the heart and not from the calendar. In other words, don't look at what is going on. Look in your heart and fast from your heart because God requires of you and stop questioning God. And then he tells him that he promises that in the glorified city, the fast will be turned into feasts. In other words, there's a day coming when they will no longer have to fast. That will be in the millennial kingdom. When they're in the city in the millennial kingdom, they will be feasting and rejoicing. Sadness will be gone and rejoicing will replace it. And they will feast. <clears throat> I don't know about you, but what a day that will be, won't it? For a thousand years... We're going to rule and reign with Christ. He's going to be sitting upon the throne of David in Jerusalem. The nations are going to come into and out of the city for a thousand years. Christ is going to rule with a rod of iron. There will be uh, uh, peace and, and, and tranquility. The world will have peace like it's never seen before because the Prince of Peace will be sitting upon the throne and Israel will be rejoicing and there will be feasting and there will be excitement and you and I are going to be partakers of that in our glorified bodies and I can't wait for that day. I don't know about you. What a day it will be. And that's the beginning. I mean, think about that. That thousand years is the beginning of eternity. 
So if that thousand years on the earth is the beginning of what it'd be like for eternity, what will eternity be like? Have you thought about that? I mean, you, you read Revelation, you read the Minor Prophets, you read the story of what it's going to be like in that thousand years when Christ is on the throne and he's ruling and reigning and the people are there in the, and some people are yet are not being glorified. But imagine what it's going to be like for eternity. This book's going to give us a bit of a glimpse in the millennial kingdom. The final section is chapter 10 through 14. And it, detail, it gives us a detailed picture of Jerusalem and God's victory over the Gentile nations. It's going to give us a detailed picture of what it will be like in the millennial kingdom. Zechariah deals with the invasion of Alexander the Great, the time of the Maccabees, that's the Jewish patriots, who delivered Israel from bondage for a time, even the fall of Jerusalem and the Romans. Zechariah also leaps to the latter days to show us the battle of Armageddon. He reveals to us the return of Christ to earth, the setting up of the kingdom. This book is vital to our understanding of things to come, but we're going to find ourselves in one verse looking at Zechariah in his day, the next verse looking at the Roman uh, Alexander the Great, the next verse maybe the Roman Empire, and then we're going to be at the Millennial Kingdom, so we're going to have to keep our wits about us as we go through the book of Zechariah. That's why I said I'm not too sure who got the long straw and the short straw out of this deal in doing these books. The book also reveals to us many prophecies about Christ. Let me just list them for you. Christ the branch, Zechariah 3.8. Christ the servant, Zechariah 3.8. Christ's entry in Jerusalem, Zechariah 9.9. Christ the good shepherd, Zechariah 9.16. Christ betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11, 12 and 13. Christ pierced, Zechariah 12.10. Christ people shall be saved, Zechariah 13.1. Christ wounded in the hands of his friends, Zechariah 13.6. Christ coming on the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14.3-8. And Christ coming on his coronation in Zechariah 14. And the, you, uh, you know, I said, I think I've got something like, uh, I did this as a Wednesday night Bible study many, many, many years ago. I think there's 28 messages and were Bible study messages back then. And uh, I was saying to the pastor this week that as I've started to look at it for Sundays, uh, I didn't do an awful lot when we did the Bible study. You just kind of do an overview. Well, in that list of Christ, uh, prophecies about Christ alone, there is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten different prophecies about Christ. They're just ten sermons on their own before you even look at the rest. So we could be here for a while in the book of Zechariah, particularly since we only do it every second month when I'm doing the evening services. So uh, Zechariah might almost go as long as the book of Revelation. Uh, so anyway, but I trust you with a blessing. You know, Zechariah, the book of Zechariah, is undoubtedly one of the least known books of the Bible. There's often been uh, often in the past been considered very difficult in interpretation. And perhaps, perhaps that because of the visions given. But it's also one of the most exciting books of the Old Testament. And I hope that the next weeks and months, uh, long it takes, we'll be able to unravel some of its mysteries. I trust that we'll receive some of its blessing. At least that's my prayer and hope as we study this book together. Gracious Father, we thank you this night for your word. We do thank you for the book of Zechariah. And Lord, tonight we've really just had an opportunity to have an overview of the book. And I do pray that, Lord, at the very least our appetites have been whetted with regard to um, 
wanting to know more, wanting to study this book. And Lord, as we study it over the months to come, may we receive from it the blessings you want us to receive. That Lord God, we might rejoice in the great God that we serve. Bless Father God now as we close the hymn. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 150.